You're listening to the New Century Multiverse, the Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered. Section 10. The Director. Additional for 1883. President Ulysses S. Grant, Washington, District of Columbia, February 12th, 1883. For reasons that will become apparent, the following information was withheld from the initial printing of this handbook. However, rumor and misconception concerning the identity and past of the author followed with it, leading many to discredit the information. There were several ugly conflicts that arose as a result of violent opposition to its very existence. Thomas W. Arlington did not rise to the rank of director of the National Intelligence Agency for any reason less than being the most informed, adroit, and determined individual I have ever had the honor of fighting alongside. As a tactician, he is to be respected and studied the inception of the cartographers and the eventual framing of the information and events within this book are due largely to him. I would ask everyone who has read thus far to set aside all preconceived ideas. Remember the changes to our society given purchase and set into motion two decades ago and look to a future when this will no longer be an issue. Director Thomas W. Arlington, Washington, District of Columbia, July 1st, 1882. For my part, the appearance of the Wendigo in America was at once tragic and transformative. In 1841, I was born into slavery in Mississippi a place I will not speak of in personal terms out of deference to the allies we may yet make from that state. Suffice to say, my life for the first two decades was one of hardship and cruelty. My mother had attempted escape on one occasion prior to my birth. For this she had her feet mutilated. When I was one year old and my sister was three, she attempted escape again. We were caught. And this time, for her continued recalcitrant behavior... She was blinded. This instilled in me from a young age a deep desire to be free, truly free, not simply for myself, but for all of us on the cotton plantation, whose owner I will spare naming, and across the whole of Mississippi and the South. To me and so many others, this mistreatment was so fundamentally against the very idea of what it was to be human that every fibre of our being yearned to redress the imbalance not for revenge on our captors, but for mercy to those held captive. I sought out knowledge, wherever it was to be found, studying all I could the world outside our plantation and the surrounding towns. When I learned of the state secession in 1861, I was twenty years old, strong and capable, hiding my keenness for information from every white face and even, I am sorry to say, some of the other workers. Many were so gripped by fear that they would sooner betray one of their own than show a fierce eye to their masters. I hatched a plan to escape, 
pleading with my mother and sister to join me on it. Looking into the sightless, sad eyes of the woman who raised me, and watching the shake of the head, even as it masked the glow of pride, stabbed at my heart. But my sister was in accordance, and on August 5th, we stole ourselves away into the night. It was a long and terrifying journey northwards through the sweltering heat of Mississippi. Tensions were at breaking point, and black men and women were being killed in the street for crimes both real and imaginary. My sister and I made it through Tennessee and Kentucky to Illinois. At that point, an immense weight fell from my shoulders. I cannot describe that feeling adequately. All I can hope is that when the last Wendigo is dispatched, that every American will look up at the sky and feel what we did on that morning as we ventured from the train station and onto the busy street in Aurora. Naturally, at the moment I experienced life, suddenly the idea of risking life and limb on the battlefield seemed a terrible notion. I busied myself working at a library and for many shameful months became engrossed in the books, shutting out the conflicts of the outside world. My sister and I rented an apartment above the seamstress's shop she was now working for. I could not imagine heaven being more pleasant. However, my sleep was impeded. I lay awake in the quiet hours thinking of the battles being fought at Bull Run, Wilson's Creek, Kessler's Cross, all victories for the Confederacy. I could not escape one single question. Had I been there, would the confluence of events have gone the same way? I planned out troop movements, studying the clashes that occurred, analyzing the strengths and weaknesses on both sides from what I could gather until finally... I could no longer ask myself that question. Tearfully, I bid my sister goodbye and enrolled with the Union Army. Along with the rest of the 7th Illinois Volunteer Infantry Regiment, I began my military career in earnest at the Battle of Fort Henry in February 1862. At the Second Battle of Corinth in October of that year, I found myself once again on Mississippi soil, facing down black slaves, now soldiers for the Confederacy. I recall marveling at the immense power these white men had over those bound to them, to put a sword in their hand and order them across the field, to kill the very men fighting for their liberation. Fearing a shortage of bodies in the South's military forces that would leave them ill-equipped to defend their right to slavery, General Robert E. Lee had used the promise of freedom to those enlisted slaves as a bargaining chip. Should they live or die, their families would be freed, provided the Confederacy eventually won the war. That was a day of victory for the Union, but I confess that a part of me I cannot sum up with tools as clumsy and inappropriate as mere words was lost. In the previous years, I had become engrossed in the writings, actions, and political teachings of Frederick Douglass, like me, a former slave who fled his bonds. But unlike me, shamefully at the time, one unafraid to agitate and challenge the accepted order of things. He saw injustice and great wrong in the way the black man was treated within our nation, 
an unspeakable hypocrisy of covering up the ugly practices with the pretense that it was all the will and work of God himself. Douglas fought daily, not just for the freedom of the slaves, but for our suffrage and recognition of equality with all other citizens. I reiterate this now not from some Negro agenda of wresting power from its rightful owners, but to illustrate what an equalizing force the Wendigo has inadvertently played upon our land. I was well aware that the North at first was not, in greater part, founding this conflict upon abolition. It was begun in continuance of re-establishing a nationwide union. Indeed, many of the men I encountered would just as soon be rid of the slaves as their Confederate brothers would have them forever bound to servitude. And in this, let us not forget the many Southerners who had no personal vested interest in our continued oppression. To the black man, however, and to many a sympathetic white soul, that freedom from bondage was, in purest simplicity, what this war was about. In January 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation declared the three million slaves within the remaining ten Confederate states as free men, President Abraham Lincoln laid down this ethos as a war goal of the North. It was noted by many, however, that there were five states and various other regions, not actively in opposition to the Union, who were able to maintain their subjugation of the black man. It took nearly three more years for the goals of unifying the rogue states and actively outlawing slavery to run concordantly. But by that time, Mr. Lincoln was no longer alive to experience the fruits of his labors. He was assassinated by those who considered his imposing of laws which made men free an act of tyranny. A word here applied to an individual bearing absolute power, but in essence outlining the nature of the way this power is used as to be cruel and oppressive. In his dying moments, the irony, I'm sure, would not be lost on Mr. Lincoln. When the war abated in 1865, I took a wife, and found myself, along with many other compatriots I had made on the battlefield, oddly unsettled with the home I returned to. Leaving my newly freed mother with my sister in Aurora, I moved with my new family to Washington, D.C., and there, for a few short years, I knew peace. Once again seeking employment, first at a library, and then with the offices of a group of lawyers, being at liberty to study hard, I did so, and when years later I first caught wind of trouble in Mississippi, I dismissed it as the inevitable pendulum swing that follows the apex of exploitation, once again burying myself in literature and historical research. That was the spring of 1872. It would be three and a half years before the Wendigo was at my door. Throughout the months of pandemonium, while the medical and law officers tried to contain the infection, I joined and ultimately commanded a Western militia unit, remaining in the city long after it was considered a lost cause. This was finally a place I called home, and I could not let it go. It was the night of November 16th that changed everything. Patrol had lasted considerably longer as there were so few of us, and I was angling to return home. At 3 a.m. I entered the house in darkness to find ruination on the inside. Windows were shattered, furniture splintered, 
The run up the stairs was the heaviest I've felt my feet before or since. In the bedroom, my wife and two daughters were tended to my son, Frederick. In the corner was a single wendigo. A ragged chunk of flesh still clasped between its broken teeth. The boy was lucky to have passed out. He was not awake for the worst of it. This was in the days when the infection was still believed to be something you could weather and survive. Confusion over the transmission had led some to believe themselves miraculously immune when they had simply not taken in any infected fluids. Around dawn, my child awoke again, but the only person left in the room was me. I had to look deeply into his eyes before I would accept what he had become. That was all the resolution I needed. I left our house, and along with my wife and daughters, made my way east. After two days' travel, we stopped at Manassas, where plans were afoot to recruit a new army and take back the District of Columbia. It would be five long years before we marched back to the capital. But that time was the true test of my resolve, and the making of me as a man, not just in standing, but in estimation of myself. There were many disputes over what was to be done while we inhabited the city. I found myself once again through military service drafted as a protector and commanding a unit of men. It was at the Council of War on April 12, 1876, when the call went out for tactical plans to assess the area and organize recruitment. Inspired by the pioneer spirit of Lewis and Clark, I vouched that we would be best served considering the entirety as untouched wilderness, until we knew better. Small scouting parties, with larger military reinforcement if possible. We would keep our men moving rather than kicking their heels in a town awaiting battle thus incorporating training and an active disposition into their daily routine. Many opposed, wishing instead to flee west into this unknown. I reiterated time and again that our chief weapon was knowledge, and one of our greatest enemies would be assumption. We could not expect to survive as a people in areas we had not already assessed as sustainable, since the eastern states have proven themselves to be so and since we had already fought so hard for them for well over a century, it was a logical step taking them back over forsaking them forever. I was surprised to find I had many allies on this matter. I had not thought myself an inspiring man up until this point, merely one who can see things clearer than most. I soon found that the two were in the eyes of many, one and the same. On one morning in July of that year, I found myself in the room with U.S. Grant himself, along with his key staff. I had never so much as glimpsed him before this, so I was not without understandable anxiety. Mr. Arlington, he said, I am reliably informed that you have an idea for a new government division. Sir, I replied, in all truth I have twenty-seven ideas. I also hear that there are elements of these that have caused some consternation. There are some who will no doubt be opposed, sir, and violently so. But power concedes nothing without demand. Well said. A 
calm, strong voice spoke up. I looked across at the only other black face in the room. It was Frederick Douglass. The words I had spoken, I realized on the spot, were borrowed from him. Within a week, I was moved into offices to commence establishing what would eventually be the National Intelligence Agency. My focus was on finding within the city the people who had the best grasp of the overall situation. I recall vividly one fellow calmly listening to me lay down my plan to open a training academy in the premises next door. He looked at me with perplexed blue eyes and stroked his mustache. How in heaven's name did a nigger like you get such thoughts in his head? I told him plain and simple. Sir, I was born with the peculiar compulsion to seek out knowledge I did not yet possess. It was merely poor fortune that led to my birth in a body and a place where doing so would result in my murder. That man headed west with one of the last parties before President Grant halted passage into these lands. It seemed that he would journey into the pathway of the devil he did not know, rather than follow the nigger he did. Taking much of my inspiration from Alan Pinkerton's National Detective Agency, founded some 26 years prior, I saw we required agents in the field specialists with keen minds to gather information. However, this was a two-way street. These were not thugs sent out to spy, and if what we learned returned only to our few Washington ears, then we had already lost the war. I hit upon the word cartographer as being an evocative title for one who builds and observes, an inspiring name designed to arouse interest as opposed to aggression. As I have stated, our chief enemy is lack of knowledge among the American people. We needed to acquaint them with the facts, swiftly and with purpose, to foster forward momentum and energize a scattered population. These agents would be map makers. They would keep a journal. They would be personable, skilled negotiators, honest and understanding types though they had to be able to respond with deadly counterattack if necessary, they had to be more liable to win us allies than leave a trail of destruction. From this remit, the search for and the passing on of information, the National Intelligence Agency was born. You have been listening to section 10 of the Cartographer's Handbook, The Director, written by Alexander Shaw. Thomas W. Arlington, Ulysses S. Grant, and Frederick Douglass, performed by Alex Shaw. George Armstrong Custer, performed by Spencer Lieb. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Morning Song, Prospector Theme, and Dreams Become Real, Composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. 
Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Daniel Salguero, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. <laughs>